You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Class as we make our way through Ephesians. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5 and we're going to cover the first 20 verses. Uh, I hope here in this class, if you would turn to page 978, if you have a leather-bound Advent Bible, uh, otherwise Ephesians chapter 5, let's have that open before us. And as we come to God's Word, let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, as Christians we're not left to ourselves. Uh, We're given your Holy Spirit, we're given your Word, and we're given a family, brothers and sisters, in your Son Jesus. And so we pray uh, that you would open our eyes to what it looks like for us to live together and what it means to be a Christian in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without having a relationship with other Christians. That was the point that Paul was trying to make at the tail end of chapter 4 here in Ephesians and what it looks like for us to live together. And that's important when we come to the Bible to ask the question, what is God saying to me? But more importantly, we need to ask the question, what is God saying? Of course the Bible speaks today, but these letters, like Ephesians, were written to a particular people at a particular time. And we really won't understand their meaning unless we're able to get behind uh, what it is uh, that Paul is talking about in their context. And then we can have a better idea of what God is trying to say and apply it to our world today. So before we get to what is God saying to me in his word, we need to ask the question, what is God saying? Because there are parts of the Bible that do speak exclusively to a particular time, a particular place, and to a particular people. Uh, But these uh, Catholic epistles uh, really are for the whole church, and we know that the early church read them. So though it's addressed to the Ephesians, everybody's reading them, uh, not just in uh, the first century or second century uh, Mediterranean world, but also in 2020 here in Birmingham, Alabama. And so the principle that the Christian life cannot be lived out in private holds today. And there's a propensity in every generation of Christians to privatize their faith. In medieval Europe, this was seen through religious societies. Uh, Still to this day, if you go in London uh, to certain Roman Catholic churches, there'll be signs up about uh, uh, prayer books for the religious can be found over here in this narthex. And what they're, they're not saying, if you're really a really religious person, but what they're saying is if you're someone who has taken a vow, if you're a monk, if you are a sister, uh, if you're a religious, uh, then here are your special prayer books. And it was thought that if you really were a super Christian, then you would become a monk or you would become a nun. And last week I even alluded to the the notion of if the only Christian work that you've ever seen has only been done by clergy, that will make you think that if I'm really a Christian and I really want to serve God in his church, then I'll go and be ordained. 
And the whole idea of being religious is to escape the world in order to dedicate yourself wholly to the reading of the Bible and to prayer. And uh, some monastics even take a vow of silence where they're not even speaking to another individual. And some are cloistered, meaning that they have no interaction with the outside world. Paul here in Ephesians says, that's not what it means to be religious. In fact, that's the opposite. The Christian life cannot be lived out in private. And though many of us today in the 21st century aren't going to join a monastery or a nunnery, we still have this idea that my spirituality, my faith, is very private. It's, it's for me. Uh, I don't wear it on my sleeve. Well, where do you wear it? Somewhere where no one can see it. And Paul says that's not Christianity. Now, Paul is not saying you need to be in people's face about it, but, but your Christianity, your faith, ought to be demonstrative in the world in which you live. Christianity is not private, and it can't be lived out in private. First, in chapter 5, he's talking about what it looks like to live in the culture as a Christian. And then you notice that he talks about wives and husbands, and then he talks about children, and, he talks to children and parents, he speaks with servants and masters, which means he says that the Christian life is played out in the context of relationships. Your relationship to the world in which you inhabit, your neighbors, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship when it comes to commercial transactions, which is really what slaves and masters is referring to. To use Christianese, sanctification is played out in human relationships. Marriage and children are sanctifying agents. I thought I was a great person until I got married. And then just when I thought I was doing really well, along came my children who reminded me, you're not the man that you think you are. And you are very far from what God is calling you to be. And so we can't run from those things because running from those relationships or saying that if you really want to be religious is to actually deny means by which God uses to sanctify the believer. And so to run away from those or to intentionally avoid those because you think, I really want to give myself over fully to the Christian life. And certainly there are those who God calls to be single. But that doesn't mean at the expense of other relationships with other believers. In fact, that means that those of us who are married, those of us who are married with children need to be more intentional about bringing our single brothers and sisters into the folds of even our own family. Because they need the sanctifying effect that draws out their sin and shows their need for the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as we do. And so our marriages, our children, can actually be agents of sanctification used by God in the life of the single person. Otherwise, 
Single people are left, single Christians can be left with the same delusions that I harbored of I'm pretty awesome. And we've all met these individuals where we would even go so far as to say that they've been a bachelor for so long that it would be bad for them to be married. Have you ever said that or thought that about somebody? And what you're really saying is that they're so set in their own ways and they lack any perspective of what's going on around them that our perspective would be that it would be a disaster for them to marry some. Now, it may be a disaster for the woman that this bachelor marries, but I guarantee you it would be the best thing that ever happened to that bachelor. The Christian life is not lived out in private, whether that be through our marriage relationship, through our work relationships, through the relationships that we have with children, and certainly, as Paul says here, relationships with other believers, God's church, and even relationships that we have with our culture. And we can easily be duped into misunderstanding how our faith is to be lived out in these relationships, especially in the culture. Uh, it can be uh, not just uh, obvious ways uh, in which we ought to live out, uh, but we can easily begin to believe in a lie about how we ought not to live out our faith and compartmentalize our faith. And so let's read this, and I, I will uh, probably stop at some point because we need to go back. So living out an Ephesian Christian, here you are, uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesus there in Turkey so many uh, uh, centuries ago. And Paul tells you, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, what Paul is saying here is that there is no disconnect between belief and practice. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you are only going to do good things. But if you're a Christian, you're going to understand your total reliance on God and his mercy. But by God's grace and the power of the Spirit in your life and the encouragement of brothers and sisters, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Children look like their parents. Children act like their parents. I'm amazed uh, looking at pictures of my father, how I even imitate his posture. I sort of slump my shoulders like this and uh, when I'm not paying attention and my picture is being taken. And, and it's exactly the way that my father looks. Or have you ever caught your child saying something and you immediately turn because you're convinced that it's you speaking to yourself? Or worse yet, you begin to say things and you stop yourself and you think, oh no, I sound like my mother. Well, there's a family resemblance when it comes to being a child of God. And Paul says you need to walk in this love, right? Live life. That's what he means by walk. You're walking in the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this ought to be demonstrated in the way in which you live your life. And it ought to be in the same way that as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This actually has nothing to do with how you interact with other people. This bit has everything to do how you live your life in the light of who God is and what he's done for you. When God sees your life, what does he see? The comparison here is to how Jesus gave his life up as a ransom for many. As a substitute for the death that we deserved, Jesus took sin upon himself and died upon the cross and died in order that we might live. And this sacrifice was accepted by God. Uh, There are sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament that were not accepted by God. We see that in the case of Cain and Abel. One brought the best, the other one thought this will do. God says that's that's not an acceptable sacrifice. The blood of goats, the blood of bulls, an acceptable sacrifice to God is a broken and contrite heart. Are you walking humbly with God? Are you walking in light of the fact that you are a sinner and yet a sinner redeemed by the grace of God? Are you putting your trust in him? Are you throwing yourself upon his mercy? And this sacrifice that you are giving uh, your life over to is acceptable to God. Hear how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not just something that we do on Sundays. Worship is how we live as Christians. Worship is how we live our lives, because worship means worship, an old English word, and it's giving God his due. It's what he deserves. So worship is not just coming in and saying prayers and hearing a sermon and singing songs. Worship is how you live your life. Uh, A friend of mine (coughs) tells the story of a church that he was the rector of in Sydney, Australia. And uh, on Sunday mornings, it was a residential neighborhood. So many people were coming to church that they were forced to park illegally, blocking people's driveways. Well, the neighborhood was getting very upset about this, and when Sunday mornings rolled around, they put cones out or they left notes on people's cars, and they dreaded it. And finally, they'd had enough and called the police, and the police came out and began ticketing cars that were parked illegally. And sure enough, many of the members were indignant because they thought, but we're here to go to church. Well, the great irony in that is that true worship would have been to love your neighbor by obeying the parking laws and not blocking their driveway. You actually were sacrificing true worship in order to do what you thought was worship. Now certainly when we gather together, worship is a part of that. It's the one time of week where God's people can get together, and I'm very excited about saying at least some of you on August the 23rd, but when Paul talks about worship in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and as he talks about walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, he's talking about our whole lives, our souls and bodies presented to God 
as an acceptable sacrifice by the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. This is why during Lent and Advent, when we come to the Lord's table, after receiving communion, that's what we pray. Now, Lord, we pray that you would accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, that, we would, that you would take our souls and our bodies. It's often called the prayer of oblation. Now, the 1979 prayer book and previous prayer books in America put that prayer before receiving communion, which is a nonsense. It's only after receiving the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection can we say, now I present myself. I'm yours. Otherwise, if you say, here I present myself and then come to the communion table, it sounds an awful lot like I'm doing a little bit of something in order to earn my place at the table. But no, it's only in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that we're able to say, here I am, Lord, a sacrifice. So how does God see our lives? And they are lives of sacrifice, aren't they? Uh, Going back into chapter 4, it's really hard uh, not to be many of the things that Paul says don't be. But are we encouraging one another on and are we throwing ourselves on the merits of mediation of Jesus Christ? And like Jesus, are we looking to our great God and Father, the living God, for that word to us which transforms? But now he turns toward living within the community, living within Ephesus. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. He said it just ought not to exist. And yet, it obviously does exist within the life of the church in Ephesus. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be talking about it. That there's sexual immorality, that there's impurity, that there's covetousness. And even beyond that, and most of us would say, I get that. We ought not to be sexually immoral, we ought to to be impure, and we ought not to covet. But let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So we went from thinking, I'm okay because I'm not committing these other things, and then Paul just simply echoes what the Bible says, is that I tell you if you've lusted in your heart after a woman you've committed adultery. And although we may not be sleeping around, it may not be that we're coveting anything, the foolish talk, the filthiness, and the crude joking, which are out of place, uh, certainly uh, tend to have a place in many of our lives. And Paul says it it needs to stop. Uh, Thankfulness, edification, needs to be the mark of a Christian. It doesn't mean that these things aren't going to slip out Uh, But when they do slip out, are you anxious to seek uh, the forgiveness of those that you've spoken to, but most especially the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? But you notice at their root, he uses this word that I've used often, uh, foolish talk nor crude joking. Earlier on, he talked about growing up. Grow up. Part of growing up as kids, and uh, this is a confession here, it was probably about third or fourth grade where I thought to talk like an adult mean to cuss like a sailor. And amongst the boys that I would play with, we turned it into an art form. Uh, it was just, we knew the words and we knew how to use them. And why were we doing that? Because we wanted to grow up. And Paul says, that's actually not growing up. That's what children do. 
That's what foolish people do. And I know that I'm not supposed to prefer a certain kind of sinner, but I've come to realize that the sinner that I least prefer are foolish sinners. Children who may have been Christians for decades and decades and decades, and yet they are fools. And here Paul is saying, grow up. Because it's not just crude joking or filthiness, it's foolish talk. I mean, just this past week, I heard about somebody calling somebody else and complaining about that, and I told them they should have hung up the phone and said, you fool, grow up. Grow up. That's what Paul is saying here. You're being foolish. And those things are out of place in the life of God's church, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And how many of us are actually willing to check the brother or the sister who is being foolish? Not to make a spectacle of them, but just to say, even if it's like, hey, you know that joke that you told? It was really funny, which is why you probably should not have told it. And then Paul takes it to a whole new level when he says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, Paul points to the reality of hell. Uh, for those who are sexually immoral, immoral or impure, who is covetousness, and of course this should also shivers down our spines. And this is a, there's a striking parallel if you go back, um, or, or rather forward, uh, to uh, Hebrews. And um, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, um, uh, just read Hebrews chapter 10, actually, uh, you will see uh, that uh, this is kind of the issue that he's talking about. For those of you who are Christians, and all of a sudden you read this and you think, oh no. I thought that if I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I was assured of my place in heaven. And that is absolutely true. What Paul is talking about here are those who persist um, in this kind of behavior. And I'm not talking about habitual sins, because what of our sins isn't habitual? But if you're not feeling convicted over this, that may be an indicator that you're actually persisting in the flesh and that... Uh, you may not, in fact, uh, know the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are finding yourself struggling with the same sins over and over again, and you're struggling, that's evidence of the Spirit grieving your heart. Because the way that Paul is talking about is the way that the world celebrates. The way to walk in the world is to be completely self-interested, which is what the nature of idolatry is. It's about self-fulfillment. I'm the most important person in my life and even in the world in which I inhabit. I'm the center of the universe, and people may not articulate it that way, but that's certainly what they mean, and they act upon it. And so sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, which is idolatry, that's placing yourself at the center of the world. No other faith places the other at the center of the world. Uh, uh, not the center of the world, but, but says this person is more important than you. Jesus is the center of your world, but that means that we're called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. 
Self-interest doesn't have a place in the Christian walk. Thinking that what's good for me is good for everybody else doesn't have a place in the Christian walk. And yet this is exactly how the pagans in Ephesus lived. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes to the sons of disobedience. Right? Not the sons of God, but the sons of disobedience. That is what is going to befall them. The reality of judgment. And when you are around these people, this is why Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. Don't become partners with them. There's intense pressure to conform. Nobody wants to be thought of as a stick in the mud. And so we often will go along with what the culture is and even we'll lie to ourselves and say, well, if I go along with what the culture is saying, then maybe that will give me the opportunity to have a witness in their life for the gospel. Paul warns, about, warns against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 where he writes to a church that was also capitulating to the culture. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. It's the same imagery he used earlier on in Ephesians. When it comes to faith, you ought to be an adult. But when it comes to the evil ways of this world, you should be a child. And so when people roll their eyes at certain Christians and say, they're so naive... They're actually being biblical. They're not concerned with being sophisticated, and yet all of us are tempted to be worldly wise. Paul says, don't feel the need to be sophisticated. Don't feel the need to be accepted by the world. They're not your standard. Now, Paul's not saying don't have a cup of coffee with them. Although, if they're exerting a negative influence over you, that does mean you should not have a cup of coffee with them. But he's saying, don't join them in their sins. They're children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. They're not walking in the light, but they're walking in darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I love that last bit. Have you actually thought, like, what would please the Lord? So if you're wondering, God, what should I do in the midst of this? Maybe the question that you need to be praying is, God, what would please you? You know, it's like Eric... uh, Uh, Eric Lytle in Chariots of Fire. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. God, what do you want me to do to please you? I want to feel your pleasure. Now here when Paul is saying uh, fruit of light, that's, why didn't he say fruit of the Spirit? Why did he say fruit of light? Well, remember we're in first century Ephesus. And for the pagan in Ephesus and in the Greek world, there was a striving after enlightenment. 
They wanted to have their minds broadened. All the great philosophers that you read when you were taking uh, philosophy classes as an undergraduate were Greek philosophers. And they would say that this philosopher has an enlightened mind. But Paul's saying is that's not true enlightenment. That's darkness. Why is it darkness? Because the Greeks believed that you could have wisdom, you could have enlightenment without morality. That you could be zapped and have a head full of knowledge and it really didn't matter the way that you behaved. So that's why amongst many of the greatest Greek philosophers and, and you see that in Greek culture, you could be completely licentious and immoral and yet be thought of as an enlightened person because it was all about gaining wisdom. And this wisdom that you would gain from pagan influences didn't necessarily make you a better person. Religion and righteousness were to be kept separate. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? You can be involved in this segment of your community as long as you leave your faith at the door. I mean, we see that especially now in uh, politics, uh, where if you hold any Christian conviction, uh, you're immediately uh, going to be slammed as unenlightened. And yet, I'm not picking on any particular conviction or, or, or trying to draw any particular one out, uh, and, but yet, actually, what Paul is saying here is that there is no disconnect between the wisdom that you've been given as you've learned Christ and how you behave in the world. It's not enough just to have the ideas of Christianity up in your head and to live life as the rest of the pagans do. You know, here at the Advent, uh, we hold our convictions uh, strongly and tightly, and we ought to. And one of the great blessings that we have received uh, is at the hands of Martin Luther, who uh, espoused the law gospel paradigm. And that is, as Christians, we're no longer under the law, but we're under the gospel. And the only thing that will give light is the go and life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the law's job is to condemn and convict, and the gospel's job is to raise us up to new life and breathe life into us by the power of the Spirit. And so the law is the mirror that shows us that our face is dirty, but the gospel is the soap that will make us clean. And it won't do any good just to keep looking in the mirror and saying, I'm really dirty, I'm really dirty, I'm really dirty. At some point, the gospel needs to enter in and cleanse us. And that's not Luther's idea. That's from uh, Scripture. But in my experience, as someone who runs in those crowds where the law gospel paradigm is, uh, is believed and espoused, I often notice that the people who come to this new knowledge, who may have grown up in a church where it was heavy on the law, meaning you know that you're a Christian if you don't smoke, drink, chew, or sleep around. That's how you know that you're a Christian. It really is all about the way that you live rather than the convictions you hold. When they hear the life-changing gospel, 
I've noticed sometimes that all of them go out and start smoking cigarettes because they feel I've got this newfound freedom and smoking won't send you to hell. It'll make you smell like you've been there, but it won't send you there. But my point is, and I think the point that Paul would make is, actually, no, that's not what it does. The gospel, you know, it, it's, you're not going to sin so that grace may abound all the more, although it does, right? Where there is, uh, who's going to feel more grateful? The person with the bigger debt that's been forgiven or the smaller debt? And God's grace is greater than our sin. Absolutely. Uh, but if the gospel really captivates our hearts, we need to be very careful that we don't revert into some sort of paganism which actually says this new knowledge that I have is the most important thing, but how that knowledge actually translates into my life is completely unimportant. And it's that it doesn't really matter what you do in your life so long as you believe this, that Paul can't possibly, it's impossible to grasp from a Christian perspective. It doesn't exist. And this is the situation in Ephesus. You've got Christ in your mind, but you're going out and you're acting as if it really doesn't matter and the wisdom that you've been given has no impact on your life, which is a pagan idea. And so he's talking about here the fruit of light, meaning the real fruit of light is not simply wisdom, but wisdom that expresses itself by your life. And so he says, so don't take part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak the things that they do in secret. They're shameful. Uh, shame is something that doesn't enter into our conversations anymore. I don't think anybody's ashamed of, uh, of anything. And yet, um, are we ashamed? Uh, do we feel uncomfortable? Uh, I have a, a friend who will go unmentioned, um, and um, I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'm going to because this is just what I do. Um, but unknowingly, uh, my friend uh, found himself at uh, a movie theater with two elderly Christians that he worked with. And if I mention their names, not only would you know them, but you've read books by them. And uh, they went to go see the movie Titanic. And while he sat between the two of them, uh, the gratuitous sex scene with Kate Winslet comes on, and my friend tried to actually sink through the chair. He actually prayed that God would melt him. And he said that that was an experience that he would, that was never spoken of again, but very rarely forgotten. He felt shame. He felt, this is not right. And, and not just that I'm with these two pillars of, of the Christian church, but also this is really inappropriate. And yet, when was the last time we said, we're not going to watch that? I mean, some of y'all have come up to me and asked, have you seen, now, I mean, it's, I know it's over now, but like, did you see Game of Thrones last night? No, I didn't. And I realized that culturally I'm missing out, and I'm sure it's, it's a captivating storyline. Uh, but Paul is saying that's partaking in the fruit 
uh, of darkness. Now I've made all of y'all feel like a complete heel, uh, but don't feel like a heel because I'm saying this, but listen to what Paul is saying and ask the question, God, what do you desire of me? Because we think that if we aren't partaking of those things, again, going back to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 14, we think we're missing out on something. I don't want to be a child when it comes to evil. I want to be sophisticated. I want to be an adult. I want to be urbane. And Paul says, actually, go a step farther. Expose it by the light. Right? The mark of a mature believer <coughs> excuse me, is not just that you won't be too, blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not that you'll just stand firm, but you'll lead others into the truth. And one of the ways in which, one of the things you have to do in order to lead others into, into the truth is to expose error and to be clear about it. And knowing when to apply the law and when to apply the gospel. There's forgiveness of sins. Are you applying it? And I'm not talking about going around and trying to make everybody feel really bad because they aren't watching Game of Th- because they are watching Game of Thrones. Because the object is not to get them to stop watching Game of Thrones. That's just good old-fashioned American morality. The object is to get them into the saving arms of Jesus Christ. And when he gets a hold of them, guess what? They're going to start feeling convictions about Game of Thrones. Excuse me, so if you're a Christian at the very least, you should feel uncomfortable when you watch Game of Thrones, and you should probably think, I shouldn't be watching this. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up! Wake up! Don't slumber. Don't drift, as the early part of Hebrews talks about. Are we sleeping as Christians? Is our faith asleep? Look carefully, verse 15, then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise. Don't walk foolishly. Do you know that you're a fool if this is how you're walking? Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, what's pleasing to him. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> now this verse, excuse me, I've got a tickle in my throat. This verse has often been used to uh, say that you're not supposed to uh, drink alcohol, and also that uh, I've heard people use this one verse and preach on how to be filled with the Spirit. It's not heretical, but actually this verse has nothing to do with either of those things. Uh, What uh, Paul is talking about here is, um, of course, don't get drunk with wine. That's true. He doesn't say don't drink, for that is debauchery. But look at the comparison he makes. But be filled with the Spirit. He's, He's drawing out the implications of being drunk and how that compares to being, being Christian. So his real aim is not so much to curb you from drunkenness, although he would certainly agree with that. It's to get you to understand of what you're like when you're drunk is what it means to not be a Christian. I mean, he's already alluded to that foolishness. You know, I've never seen, I've never heard anyone say, you know, that, that night when I tied one on, uh, I made the best financial decisions of my life. 
My wife and I thought that it would be a good idea for us to sit down at our computer and start trading stocks after we were three bottles deep. No. And in the same way, he said, are you, are you so intoxicated with the world that you're just walking around drunk and making bad decisions? Drunkenness makes you impressionable. And so, of course, we want to be open-minded, but we don't want to be impressionable. Paul's saying, no, that which leads you to your decisions and determines how you live your life is the Spirit of God. In the same way that when you've had too much to drink, the next morning you have to go around and you apologize and say, sorry I said that, sorry I did that, or whatever I said and whatever I did, I'm sorry for that. I had too much to drink. In the same way, are you able to attribute your own actions to the Holy Spirit of God? The Holy Spirit working through you is actually bearing the fruit, not of drunkenness, but of God. Address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, because if you're intoxicated with the world, you're actually going to be talking about immoral and filthiness and crude joking and all of that kind of stuff. And of course, that's just code for for a fleshly attitude. And we talked about that last week as well. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now he is talking about how we interact with other Christians here. What do you speak of when you speak with other Christians? Worship ought to be instructive, not simply experiential. Because remember, that, that was the experience of the pagan world. You went off to the temple in order to have this ecstatic experience, whether it was to visit the oracles at Delphi, and the, the hypothesis is that there was a gas fissure of some kind uh, there in the temple, and when the gas would come up, people began to lose their minds, and they attributed that uh, to an encounter with the gods. And even look at the gods that they worshipped. You know, the gods that they worshipped had a significant degree of power, but they were always running around and sleeping with so-and-so and, and, and having children with so-and-so or doing dastardly, awful things with this other person. And it was about the, the experience that they had was, was about ecstasy, uh, bordering, if not going into, the hysterical. And there are some in the church that think that that's what worship ought to be. Yes, of course, let's speak to one another in songs, hymns, and, and, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. But do you see, speaking to one another, worship ought to be instructive. It's not just about you and your experience. And during this time of COVID, I know that some of you are saying, you know what I like? I like what's going on right now. I'm in my PJs. I realize it's 10-something in the morning, and I got a cup of coffee, and this is pretty great. I'm not sure that I'm going to go back. And you may even think, well, I didn't get that much out of church when I was going. But like Paul says elsewhere, when it comes to being the body of the Christ, body of Christ, one is an ear, one is a foot, 
We need one another. So even if you're not getting something out of church, what if God is using you to minister to somebody else? And when you're not there, that person's spiritual life is diminished because you're not able to communicate them with him with them with hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Worship, our gathering anyway, ought to be instructive, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps hammering away at the fact that that thankfulness is the theme of the Christian life. And in the Christian life, we need wisdom. But I find that there is more wisdom around than courage. And in the evil days that we live in, as Paul says here, nothing has changed. We do need wisdom, but we also need courage. And that courage is often instilled when we're around one another and we're encouraging one another on in God's word. And next week, we're going to actually have a special guest with us. We're going to do an interview. Uh, But then the following week, we are going to get into uh, wives and husbands. And I've already started work on this. And just to give you a taste, um, I asked Lauren even this morning, Lauren, when I say wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, what does that mean to you? And she said, nothing. So we have that to look forward to in two weeks' time because she was being silly. It obviously means uh, a lot. Maybe I'll bring her in. Maybe we'll have a a sanctifying talk about what that means uh, for Christian marriage. But let's pray before uh, we uh, go on our ways and finally put on some real clothes for the day. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. And Lord, that we would not just have a head full of knowledge, but that our hearts would be Uh, brought to a place where uh, the fruit is different by the power of your spirit that we would not walk in foolishness and for those who are children uh, that we would grow up in the Lord Jesus and for those of us who are uh, adults uh, when it comes to worldliness uh, we pray that we would become like children uh, for our good but above all for the glory of your name in Jesus name we pray amen You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.